As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 25. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Ken Fader. And today, we're discussing the Nazca Lines and a little bit about cargo cults. How are these two connected? What does it mean? And what were the Nazca Lines probably used for in actual real life? Stick around and get ready to think critically. Trench, monuments, going to the pub when the day is spent. Funny beady blokes, you will see are a staple of archaeology. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I'm your host Sarah with my co-host Ken Fader. Hi Sarah, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing? I'm hanging in, absolutely. That's good. Yeah, winter's coming up, how about that? Yeah, winter's coming up. We're not looking at a white Thanksgiving. We're looking at a green Thanksgiving, I guess. I, I don't believe the South gets winter. I think the South thinks it gets winter, but I don't think it actually understands what winter is. But anyway. The South, yeah. We always we laugh up here when, you know, there's a quarter of an inch of snow and they have to close all the schools in Atlanta and everybody freaks out. <laughs> and it's just like, God, you know. We walk around barefoot people. in a quarter of inch of snow. Come on. All right. Um, so according to – so we're having some issues with Skype right now, which I think you and I are both apparently aware of. Right. Point. Yeah. So if our if our we're, kind listeners could please bear with us. Yeah, we're going to gut through it, though. Yeah, I'm going to blame the weather because I have nothing else to blame. Blame the weather. You can blame – how about sunspots? Ooh, sunspots. That's a good one. Yes, that's always sunspots. a good one. Northern we lights. should do an episode on sunspots. Or, you know, it's because we landed somebody. You know, it's ever since we landed a guy on the moon that uh, Skype hasn't worked very well. A guy on the moon. Yes, it goes yeah, all the way it's back. It's always that. It goes all the way back to that. Yeah, absolutely. Was it the 1940s? But, but wait Isn't a minute. Maybe we, didn't, maybe we actually didn't land anybody on the moon. We've had ele- right. No, stop, stop. We've had 11 <laughs> successful moon missions. Stop it. <laughs> Uh, I know, yeah, but you know, but we all we do know that there are people out there who claim that the whole thing was a setup, was a fake. They did it on some soundstage in Hollywood, and that we really didn't land anybody on the moon. So, well, and, what, and you know? I don't think those people realize that we have had eleven. Uh, 
actually, I think it's probably like 12 or 13 or something like that. Successful moon missions. I don't know if you can really count Apollo 11. I don't know. I mean, they all came you back a lot. we have too. a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Say. Infamous, that, infamous words. When, yeah, when, when, you, when, when the guys come back and they land and they're still alive, that's a successful mission. That's true. Back then, that was a successful mission. But, you know, everybody came back alive. Yay. So, <laughs> but yeah, but if and now if anybody out there is you know if you're interested in astronomy, Phil Plate has a and he's an astronomer has an awesome website called I, I, it's Bad Astronomy I think is its name and you should go oh, check yeah. that out and he's got a, a, an, an entire section, you know not that really anybody at this point should have to debunk the claim that we never landed on the moon but he's got it laid out there so that there is no way anybody who has can actually read. Um, can come away from that website and think that there's still a controversy or an issue about that. Yeah, but you know, we come back to that whole uh, anyone of authority is automatically suspect kind of thing. Though, I mean, yeah, you and I are completely convinced by that, and probably any normal person would be as well. Right. But yeah. you know, but you, you never know, people. Sarah. You and I could be agents of the Smithsonian trying to keep all this quiet and, and to delude the American public because they cannot handle the truth. Well, I know my lizard folk overlords are really pushing this whole <laughs> agenda. Uh, I get weekly updates on it at least. So That's right. yes. I think, I think it was, I think it was Anthony Avani who's the, you know, no, Ed Krupp, who's a archaeoastronomer, astronomer who's dealt with archaeological sites. Who he was accused at the same time I was accused of somehow being in a conspiracy against the fringe archaeologists and and so Krupp and I both admitted that we yeah we meet on alternate Thursdays in the church basement and sometimes he brings the potato salad and sometimes I do and we and we plot uh, uh, against common folk to keep them in the dark about all these secrets that we're harboring about um, you know human antiquity. You know, I, I got my first, uh, that's not my first, first comment, but I did have somebody on the blog uh, blow up on me about how there's obviously an agenda to my blog and that if they could trace the money that I was being paid to write the blog, <laughs> that they would know what agenda that what, that I was pushing. Um, right. Also referred to me as a dude, uh, which, you know, again, I'm I'm really okay with that. But what cracked me up was I was just like, I, you know, the, the agenda, the money behind this blog is like the $12 an hour I make at the children's museum. So there's, there's my yes. agenda. My agenda is I like to eat. <laughs> well, and the thing is, yeah, we all, we have, you and I do have an agenda and the agenda is let's try to get out the, the word yeah. about the veritable antiquity what we really know from the archaeological research that we and our colleagues conduct and if anybody thinks that i'm getting a ton of money from doing this you should come see my house which right? was built in 1840 and i i probably should burn it down and start all over again i still love the guy who threatened to sue me until i lived out of my car he was going to sue me until i had nothing left but my car to live out of and i'm like obviously you don't know me because i already live out of my car but thanks <laughs> There you go. There you go. Uh, whatever. Uh, and we are, in fact, we're going to be talking about an issue that is right smack in the middle of this kind of fringe archaeology. It and, is. Uh, it's a very, yeah, it's, I find it very interesting because, I don't know, it's just weird. Like, uh, the first time I encountered this was, I, I think it was in your book. 
your Frost Myths and Mysteries was the first time I, I saw anything about the Nazis. That's, that's where the big money is, Sarah. <laughs> Debunking archaeological frauds. Well, uh, right. I only wish. <laughs> but no, um, yeah, so today we're going to talk about the Nazca lines, and they're, they're very, they're a hot button topic for a lot of Absolutely. French archaeologists. Sure. They have a lot of different explanations. Um, I, I, they really are tied to aliens more than anything else that we'll cover uh, probably on the show, just because the idea that they can only be seen properly if you are, some people like to say if you're in outer space, um, but really you you prove that they don't, no, you didn't, um, Psychop proved that you don't even have to be that high up above them to see the full right. blip. Well, yeah. Right, of course, uh, of course. But we'll get into that, and I yeah, think you went absolutely. over that. Yeah. Um, well, maybe what we should do is start by, for, for people who aren't, you know, who've been living in a cave, who yes. don't know what the Nazca lines are, maybe, you, would you like to briefly explain or describe or define them? Yeah, I mean, they, they, a lot of, most people do know what the Nazca lines are, but I don't think people are, like, completely understand what the Nazca lines are. There, there are, I think, I want to say there's around 100 different glyphs that fall into the group of the Nazca lines and they run the gambit from um, simple geometric shapes all the way up to fairly complex shape um, like outlines of animals like there's the right, yeah. well, one of the most famous ones the condor um, archaeologists have linked the Nazca lines to the Nazca culture and that's because uh, in the excavations that have been done around and near the the Nazca lines there are there's plenty of material evidence to link it back to the Nazca people um but not a hundred percent sure as archaeologists what the Nazca lines themselves were used for by the Nazca culture but uh we're pretty sure it wasn't for flagging down aliens um, right, exactly now the Nazca lines were actually one of those interesting things that kind of got lost uh into history for a while and they i believe there was a woman named maria ritchie well i know there was a woman named maria ritchie and i think she her, was her name first. is yeah the pronunciation she's she was german so it's maria reicha reicha okay yeah there you go yeah. so it's maria reicha and um she rediscovered them uh, during a flyover uh across peru and now to her credit she was a i believe she's a mathematician yeah I was think a mathematician like that. Yeah, and so, yeah, she, but she, she instantly became fascinated with them, and because of Maria Reiko, we know more about the Nazca lines than we would have, um, because she, she made it her, her mission to kind of raise awareness about the, the Nazca lines and to bring them back into um, the public eye. Um, unfortunately, is she had some interesting hypotheses that did not turn out to be supported by evidence or facts. Um, but, you know, the, the fact that she got them out there and that people became more aware of them is great. There's, I think there's like three of them that are maybe four that are the most famous. Um, the first one being the, the great trapezoid, I believe it's referred to. And it's kind of looks like a trapezoid that has this line going off into the distance. Um, the other one is the the Great Condor, which is a very substantial sized uh, glyph. Uh, the Hummingbird is another pretty famous one. And then there's the little dude with the hand. He looks like a oh, bean. Yeah. 
with a hand. He's waving. He's waving. Yeah, yeah. Now, the way that the Nazca lines are, the way the Nazca lines are created is in the, the desert there, there is a lot of, um, the surface has a lot of iron oxide deposits. So it's kind of a rusty red color for as far as the eye can see. And there's not a lot of weather there. So once that iron oxide dust gets put down, it basically just stays there forever. But the nice part about that is, is the rocks underneath it, or if you remove the top layer of rocks, the rocks beneath have this really striking white color. And so that's how the Nazca lines seem to have been created, is that people walked along and basically, obviously they had determined a shape. And so they went through and they just removed the top layer of rocks, setting them off to the side or carrying them off to another location and uh, revealed the white rock beneath. So you have this beautiful contrast in the desert. And I'm sure when it's fresh, it's gorgeous. Um, I'm sure it was very striking and very moving, um, very artistic, I would assume. Uh, All the pictures I have are like LIDAR or black and white images. So I don't get that great contrast of colors. Right. But they have been studied for a very long time. And I think the most popular explanation for what they may have been used for was um, uh, group cohesion ceremonies. Uh, And they probably had something to do with the changing of the seasons or some other reasons. But um, we believe they were used for ritualistic purposes, obviously, because that's the default for everything. And uh, we think they were. Yeah. And we think maybe they were being used as kind of like a meditation maze kind of walking situation because all of these lines are made to look as if they were one continuous line. One continuous line that's been, well, at least the shaped ones like the condor and um, the hummingbird. And they look like they've just like a long wire has been bent into a bunch of shapes. And if you were to walk along that, you could walk continuously without a break in the white line and come out on the end, kind of like maze walkers. Um, those meditation right, yeah. mazes that you find, sure. yeah. So that's they're not really true mazes. They're because it's a continuous line. You don't have to negotiate your way through it. Um, you can't get lost in a in, in a meditation maze. Um, and I found I don't know if you've heard about this group, but there was the Nazca Paul the Nazca Palpa project. They did the most in depth research that I'd seen. Uh, that, I, that was available to me um, on the Nazca lines. And they pretty much said that, yeah, these are ritualistic spaces. They were used for group cohesion. They were used for identity affirmation. Um, and he backs all that up with the evidence that they were finding of the materials left behind, ceremonial objects, pottery, um, right. offerings and such. And... Yeah. And when, you, when you look at the, 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 the ceramics that was found... That, found up in, this is in southern Peru, it's a highland desert, and the the folks who in, lived in that area, who left behind this pottery, the designs, the images on the pots, seem to be very close approximations to the, on a small scale, uh, to the images that you see on the, um, uh, on the, on the, the desert. So in other words, one of the real famous Nazca lines, Nazca effigies, the, the, the term we want to use here is geoglyph. And that's a term yes. that's used to 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 um, identify these very large scaled images 
that in yes. fact, as we'll talk about, they're they're not just in Peru; they're all over the world. And this was a this a, a pretty now I won't say common, but certainly it's not unique to Nazca. This production of these large scale images, whether we're talking about lines or effigies of animals or anthropomorphs or whatever. Um, and I think the only thing unique about these is the method used to create them. And 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 yes and no because. Uh, we'll talk about about um, the intaglios in the New World in, in North America that kind of use some of the same techniques. But okay. again, the point here is that, yeah. that the monkey or the spider, which is another gorgeous one, and these things are literally hundreds and hundreds of feet across. Yeah. And uh, and there's an orca, it looks like a whale, and there's a hummingbird that you see images that look that artistically the style is very similar. Of course, that's a large scale, but on a small scale to the images you see on the pots. So the idea here is, listen, these are the same, this is the same artistic tradition. So it's the same time period, which is maybe 500 BCE to 500 common era. So from, you know, from 1500 years ago to 2500 years ago, they're making these incredible, this incredible investment of ener in energy to produce linear figures these geometric figures and these these animals, these critters. Well, and we'll also discuss that it probably wasn't that much of a use of energy. Uh, there was a reproduction well, done of the condor that actually didn't require that many individuals to make. Oh no no no! But but you understand that there are there are so many of these lines, and they go on for such oh, long yeah, extended. Yeah, yeah. So in any individual one, we're not talking about building a pyramid. We're not talking about that investment of energy or labor. Yeah. But overall, there's a lot of work that goes into this. You know, one of the things when we could, let's, I think first we should probably talk. A, a, let me let me give you just a tiny bit of context. Um, I have never been to Nazca. I've never flown over the area. Um, it's by the way, though Maria Reicher was was probably yeah she's got to be the most the most important person in bringing um uh, these lines to the attention of the world it was actually yeah. a spanish explorer back in the 1500s encountered them and he thought they were roads he thought they were trails so he misidentified them just looking at these straight lines but it was paul right. Cossack who was a, a maria reicha was a student of his or they they certainly were contemporaries and um he identified them, and then Maria Reicha devoted her entire life to their study and their exploration. Um, right. But again, the, so I'll, I'll give you some examples. You know, in Ohio, um, I've seen Serpent Mound, which is very differently made than the lines or the effigies, the, the geoglyphs of Nazca. But the, the same basic idea, in that case, you've got a, an earth mound that's a few feet high, that's about 1,350 feet long in the shape of a giant coiled snake on this this ridge top in southern Ohio. Um, in England, oh, kind of accidentally, while I was going to Stonehenge, I looked in the rearview mirror of the car that I was driving on the wrong side of the road, um, and in the rearview mirror, I saw the Uffington horse, which oh, is this gigantic that. Neolithic yeah. image of, and it's the the art is amazing. It's not a naturalistic or realistic horse. It's it's abstract and incredibly beautiful. In that case, mm -hmm. the production, the, the 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 work that was done was removing the sod, exposing the white chalk, the the, the soil, um, and it's that contrast between the green sod and the white chalk that produces this gigantic horse against again many many feet across. Um, mm -hmm. Another image that I didn't get to see. There's a giant guy, a giant man, an anthropomorph. This is also in the south of England. Um, 
and he's gigantic. He's holding up like what appears to be a war club. And the deal is, this is, you know, this is a kind of an R-rated geoglyph. He's got a, 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 just a huge boner. And, he's, and, it, and it's, all, it's there <laughs> for all to does. see. So it's, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, right? So, so he's in there apparently really sexually aroused and he's about to bash somebody's brains in with a club. Again, made the same way. Taking away the, the, the sod, exposing the white chalk um, to make this image. A few years ago, a bunch of pranksters went... Now, they didn't touch the, this beautiful, ancient piece of art, uh, which is, a, I think it's surrounded by a fence, but right adjacent to it, they made their own, using the same techniques that the ancient people used, they made their own geoglyph, um, kind of a mirror image of the guy with the giant erection in the club, only what, the, what they made was Homer Simpson in his underwear, and instead of holding up a giant club, he's holding up a donut. <laughs> And I don't know if they got in trouble for that because I don't think they were supposed to do that, but they didn't affect the ancient monument. Um, so there's that. And then in Southern California, uh, right on the Arizona border, uh, about three and a half hours, three hours, three and a half hours east of Los Angeles, uh, north of, the, of the, the, the city of Blythe, at Blythe, California, are the Blythe Intaglios. And those are actually a lot more like the Nazca geoglyphs. These are, and I've seen a handful of them, and there too, they've been memorialized. There's a fence around them because idiots in four-wheel drive vehicles were driving over these things. They are probably in the neighborhood of 500 to 1,000 years old, and they're somewhat like the Nazca lines. They were produced by sweeping away darker pebbles and exposing a lighter desert surface. Um, And those, the the Blythe Intaglios include the, the ones that are most famous, I think there are three giant anthropomorphs. So there are three guys. I think one, the biggest, I believe, is about 180 feet long from his feet to his head. His, his arms are out, so it's like 100 and some 20 feet across. So there are three guys like that. There are a couple of quadrupeds. And I, you know, in all honesty, I've seen them. I can't tell you what the animals are. Are they deer? Are they more recently? Are they horses? Hard to tell. And a couple of geometric, you know, a spiral and maybe a snake. And that's in Southern California. But the idea in all of these is the same. And that I think is what makes people so entranced by these and so susceptible to kind of bizarre explanations. And that is, and having been to the Blythe Intaglios, Absolutely. You can't really appreciate them in their entirety when you're standing on the ground. They can only be appreciated from up above. So you want to see the Blythe Intaglios, go to Google Earth, type in Blythe Intaglios, and that's I-N-T-A-G-L-I-O, and you'll see these amazing aerial images. If you, you can just kind of move around in Google Earth and see them and go, but yeah, but you know what? I can only see them when I'm up above them. And I think that's what leads people to this kind of interesting but unsupportable notion, unsupported notion, that therefore the people who made them, the people who directed them, the people who designed them somehow had the ability to hover above them, could fly above these things and literally right. see them from on high. And that's that's a fundamental error, I think, that is made by the fringy people um, we can talk about Eric von Doniken and, and his hypothesis, which is even more bizarre. Um, but the, this notion that, well, the only way people could produce this 
is by being able to actually fly above them. But as you pointed out, Sarah, they are, there actually was a replication of one of the using the kinds of technology that would have been available to the folks of Nazca and without being without having to fly up in the air, they actually successfully did one of these replications. And as soon as we get back from break, we will discuss the reproduction of Condor. Fantastic. Hello, everyone. Chris Webster here from the Archaeology Podcast Network, and we're giving away an iPad Mini 4 to one of our listeners. The iPad Mini 4 came out in September. It's a 16-gigabyte space-gray iPad with AT&T cellular-ready antenna. All that means is it comes with GPS. You do not need to get a data plan. And you don't even need to be on AT&T if you never get a plan to get a data plan. It just has GPS. It also has a fingerprint sensor and Apple Pay-ready and all the good perks that come with that. So it's a good iPad. We use them in the field. There are two easy ways to enter. One, do a Profiles and CRM interview before December 15th, 2015, or recommend someone for an interview. You'll both get an entry once the interview is posted. If you want to know more about Profiles and CRM, go to www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash profiles. All the questions are listed right there. The other way to enter is to like the APN Facebook page and share it with your friends on Facebook to get the word out about our awesome podcasts. The winner will be announced December 16th, 2015 at 4 p.m. Pacific time so get your entries in send me those emails for people that want to do the profiles and serum podcast and good luck to everyone hi mac take us out with a binary solo And we are right. back, and we are going to discuss. Uh, there was one. There was a reproduction of the condor that was done. I it, I, I thought it was cool. And um, oh yeah, so absolutely I, cool. Yeah, I, some people might also be familiar with a magazine called. Um, I, I think it's just called Skeptic. Uh, well, this, Skeptic no, this is Skeptical Inquirer. The Skeptical Inquirer. Thank you. Uh, yeah, but yeah. a lot of There's people may Skeptic also know. Magazine as well. yeah. There is yes. Uh, and people might know who Joe Nickel is, and if you don't, you should look him up. He's a cool guy. Uh, but uh, so he apparently also got tired of the whole oh the Nazca lines they could only have been created by people trying to flag down aliens because blah they're so big and they would have taken so much effort and so much time and and all this stuff. So what um, Joe did is that he he went out. I don't think he went to the to the uh, condor itself, but he has some images of the original. Figure. He knows how big it's supposed to be. So right. he drew up the plans to make a replica of the giant condor. And he got together with his two cousins, uh, one of his friends and his 11-year-old nephew. And yeah, and they went to a um, they went to a trash dump, one of the kinds that they cover with soil. And he took chalk with him, uh, powdered chalk, and yeah. he took a knotted rope, a handful of stakes, and a T-square that they had constructed from two pieces of wood tied together with twine. So these are all very primitive objects with the exception of the powdered chalk, and that was merely because they needed something to create the contrast with. Yes. Um, there were no lasers were used in the production. No lasers were used in the production of this. Exactly. From my understanding, the, the sticks were, I think, too, like, the wood was just like leftover sticks that they had found somewhere. So it's not unreasonable to think that, you know, people that could carve rock into tools could also maybe find two straight sticks to lash together. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
but so they they set out and using a detailed drawing that can, uh, that Joe had already produced, which again not so far fetched to think that people would have done. I mean, you don't just go out into the desert and magically start creating these objects. Um, these, I think there was six people all together were able to reproduce the 440 foot long condor in just over a day and a half. Right. And let's see. And I believe Joe took an airplane. He, he hired a friend with a biplane to take him up. And I think they only had to get roughly a thousand feet up in the air before they were able to see the entire effigy. Right. Yeah. Um, and again, they only used the plane to check out what it looked like when they were done. They did not use that in right. in designing this or in carrying it out. So right, because there has been there's been well there's been well documented um, observations of the actual Nazca lines themselves that they can be seen in their entirety by merely climbing up the cliffs that are around the desert area itself. So you don't even have to be. Right in the sky you just have to get some height to you i mean yeah you got to be up a little higher than on your tiptoes but yeah. you you don't have to be in the sky yeah i mean i've actually seen a video of maria reicha and she must have been an amazing woman because even i think well into her 80s she was still climbing up mountains and drawing yeah. making drawings and photographing the lines and i've seen a video of her on a on a ridge line, looking down on what appears to be a giant snake, and she's drawing it. So she's mm -hmm. not in an airplane. She's not in a UFO. She yeah. is merely on a on a, a high and you know on a high an elevation where she can look down on these. I'm not sure that's that's true in every one of these cases, but certainly it's true in some of these cases. I mean, so basically, what Joe did was he he made a scale. He drew a scale model and then just merely you know, ramped up the numbers, multiplied it out and yeah. made it larger. And it was really very, very well done. And, and the, the photographs that he took that I've seen yes. are, Hey man, those are, that's, that's a really good replication. Just to the naked technology. eye, just to the naked eye comparing it or an original image of the condor to his reproduction of the condor. It's, identical and i mean yeah i'm sure there's slight variances but it is damn near identical yeah. i mean basic the bottom line here is that what joe showed was that a little ingenuity which ancient people sure as hell had a had a boatload of right some very simple tools which we know they had which right. they certainly were capable of producing he could with a little bit of work determination he could make a giant geoglyph that you and I would recognize as, well, that's a giant bird, and wow, it looks just like the one in southern Peru. Yeah. And so that, is that, does that prove that that's how it was done? You never do that. In experimental archaeology, what you've done is you've shown that using appropriate technology and skills, the, the people of Nazca could have done this without the use of of extraterrestrials or you, you know, or, or the ability to fly. Um, I, I don't know. Are you familiar with this, Sarah? A bunch of years ago, there was a book um, called uh, Masters of the Sun in yeah. which this guy claimed that, well, gee, maybe the folks, the Nazca folks actually made hot air balloons. Yeah. And they, they built a replica hot air balloon with a little like a reed um, cargo hold and somebody, you know, fired up you know, fired up the, the fuel so that it filled up the balloon with hot air and they were able to float over the Nazca lines. Now, the point I made before about, you know, experimental archaeology shows that, well, that could have been, right. but that doesn't necessarily prove that's what happened. 
So fundamentally, they show that maybe because the folks of southern Peru during this time period were really good weavers, really good textile makers, that they could have made fabric could hold air long enough that if you heat it up, you could float up above the lines. There's zero evidence that that was done. And Nickel and others have shown that's not necessary. And you're applying Occam's razor, you know, that the simplest right. explanation that requires the fewest other assumptions is the one to go with until you find convincing evidence that something else was going on. There is no convincing evidence that they used hot air balloons. No, they and they certainly could have made it without without that kind of technology. Yeah. And, and that comes back to the the conversation we were having a couple of weeks ago about the whole just because they had the the pop probable ability to do something doesn't mean that they did. Also, again, like you were saying, there's no evidence of hot air balloons. Right. And right. the Peruvian desert is actually one of those few areas where you can actually have textiles uh, preserve fairly well. Right. Yeah. Um, which is not true about probably the rest of the world for the most a part. Lot of, a lot. Yeah, of a good of chunk of the world. <laughs> I'm not saying the Peruvian desert's like the only place that that happens. It's just like it's not going to happen in the Midwest, and it's not going to happen in a wetlands probably, unless it's right, yeah, one of those yeah. weird bog people things. I mean, there's incredibly cool stuff in the American Southwest. We've got fabric. We've got sandals yeah. that have yeah. survived for thousands and thousands of years. Right, and that's not going to happen in the Midwest. Yeah. yeah. Um, and probably not on the East Coast either, but. So we do know that they that's how we know that they were good weavers and stuff, because we're finding these the evidence right. of such things. But I would think something as large and as intricate as a hot air balloon and a basket would probably have been preserved somewhere at some point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, the bottom line here is that it's a it's a very interesting hypothesis. But, you know, we always have to go beyond simply, well, gee, that sounds interesting or maybe that's plausible. We need definitive positive evidence before we can conclude that's how it was done that doesn't exist and we don't need that technology right. in order to understand how they might have might have built those those lines you right. know another thing that we you know i think we would be remiss sarah if we didn't point out some of the really extreme and this is the fun stuff the really extreme claims made about the nazca lines especially by your favorite my favorite author in the world eric von Doniken. I do um, like his books. They're they're von, excellent sci-fi. Yes, von von, von um, says very explicitly that when you fly over the Nazca uh, lines, that they give the impression of the runways at an airport. And at one point, and that's where the geographical shapes come in, because that usually is the uh, the Great Trapezoid, and I think there's another long-lined one. Yeah. Oh, there are lots and lots of lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's so, two that are like really big. Yeah, but in a, in in one of in one of his books, there's a photograph of what appears to be uh, these large um, um, not compartments, but areas that have been drawn out in a Nazca line. And von Däniken says, "Look at this. Does this not look like the uh, an area where airplanes park at an airport before they're about to take off?" And that, that was in his book over many, many, many um, editions. And when Von Doniken was called on this in a video that, that Horizon, BBC Horizon did, that became a Nova episode here in the United States, he was called on this because, in fact, the photograph that he showed right. was not the parking bays of an airport. Those were what appeared to be stylized feathers 
in the leg of a giant condor. Yeah. And when you saw the actual scale of it, there, the, the airplanes that could have parked there could have been no more than about two or three feet across because it's actually relatively a very small piece of real estate. Right. So that was that was something that was almost intentionally misrepresenting what was there. It was not the parking bays of an airport. It was part of a giant bird's leg, and it was not big enough to house any kind of 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 aerial of vehicles, aerial or otherwise. But that's the kind of nonsense that you saw. The other thing that I think is hilarious was that there's this implication that that, that, that the ancient people of South America needed extraterrestrial aliens who came to Earth thousands of years ago across interstellar space. And what do they do when they get to South America? Right. They instruct the natives to build giant spiders, hummingbirds, and, and, and monkeys in the Highland Desert. And it's kind of like, what? Wait, what? Well, what? Actually, that... That actually is a great segue into something that I wanted to connect back to the Nazca lines. And it's an argument that I have heard from other people. And that is the whole argument that the Nazca lines are a leftover of a um, ancient alien cargo cult. And if people are not fully aware of what a cargo cult is, um, very simply broken down, it happens when a more technologically advanced culture comes in contact with a less technolo- technologically advanced culture and then leaves. And the less technologically advanced culture tries to replicate what the advanced culture had been doing, but doesn't quite get it. Um, the same terminology is usually ref- uh, applied to cargo cult science where you get a lot of um, fringe scientists and stuff who are going through the motions of what they think science is supposed to be, but they're like missing the point entirely. Yeah, John R. R. Cole, who was an archaeologist, um, he really made that very explicit in some some of his publications in the 1980s, where he called fringe archaeology effectively they're it's like cargo cult science it's like they kind of know what scientists are doing but they don't know how to replicate that so they do it on the cheap and they do it sort of in this this incompetent way um and yeah like i think the the whole cargo cult thing starts that it it was defined as as a, a thing in i guess it was in the western pacific yeah, after but, World but, War II. Yeah. So that there, here were people who, Native people, who didn't quite get what these, these aliens, who they were and where they were coming from, but they had a lot of good stuff. It was really yeah. enormously powerful. And then when they left, they wanted them to come back. And so it was they built like fake run fake runways in the um, – because they knew that those big birds, the airplanes, disgorged really cool stuff. And so they built like – towers out of wood that replicated what they saw on some islands which were in fact the you know the airport control towers and they they cleared woods they cleared forests and made these these pretend runways thinking that this would induce these planes to come back well so the most famous cargo cult that's that probably anyone has had a chance to hear about um is the the vanatu who have a cult called the the cult of john firm and we kind of created this, uh, we the Americans, because we had um, – in World War II, we had air bases there. 
So this goes back to what Ken was talking about with the whole the, the crazy birds from the sky. Right. And yeah, yeah so we, we built air bases there in the South Pacific and we employed the locals, the local native people to help run the air bases. But we never really like educated them as to what exactly was happening. So they they learned that while they were there, if they held the lights and they did the whole thing, the over the head thing and wore the headset that the plane would land. But they didn't understand that in the radio tower the or that there had been a flight manifesto so that the, the plane was expected. They thought that just doing that motion is what made the plane come. So, sure. okay. so when World War II was wrapping up and, and we didn't need our bases in the South Pacific anymore, um, unlike modern times, we actually closed those bases and sent everybody home. Well – the native people came up with a story about how a guy named John Furham, who was one of these American or British, or maybe he was French, but he told the people that he was going to come back. And when he returned, he was going to bring the cargo with him. Right. Now, this is changed. This story obviously has evolved over the years. This cult's been around, like I said, since the World War II. And when I was researching this, there's been schisms within the John Furham cult. So there's like John Furham Orthodox cultists and there's John Furham, you know, seven day Advents or whatever. But so there's there's schisms within this religion that has popped up around it. And just listening to interviews with a couple of the leaders of these religions, they're very aware of the fact that this is probably not really going to happen but the the religion has created a cohesive a cohesiveness for the for the groups and it sure. allows them an identity and so that's why yeah. they're they're continuing the storyline but that's what um some french arch- some french scientists have suggested the nazca lines actually represent is a cargo is the leftovers of a cargo cult where you had the aliens and they came and they landed and they had all their good stuff and they were giving it to the native peoples. And then they left for some reason and the native peoples wanted more cargo, but they didn't understand why it was coming. So they mm-hmm. built these Nazca lines as basically their fake runways to try to entice the cargo to come back. The The problem with that story is, is if you go to Vanatu and you speak with the John Furham peoples or you go to those the, the um, villages and, and such, you will find modern World War II era trash there. Right. And it looks very out of place because these people were not modernly technologically advanced before we got there. Um. That doesn't mean they're I'm not saying anything derogatory about them. I'm just saying they didn't have airplanes and they didn't have radios and they sure as hell didn't have canned food. Um, but we know that we were there because there is trash. It's like Ken and I have discussed in the past. Where's the trash? Right. When you look at Nazca, the the broken bits and the and the trash that we find there ties back perfectly to the Nazca peoples and the Nazca culture. There's no out-of-place objects there. There's nothing that looks like it doesn't belong. Yeah, I think, Sarah, that, that's that's actually a brilliant um, metaphor or analogy. Because think about this. Supposing it's uh, uh, it's 500 years from now and extraterrestrial aliens land on Earth and they, they see this cargo cult in action. 
Um, supposing they don't have, they can't translate our history, so they don't, they can't read about World War II. From a purely archaeological perspective, they would see there's some alien stuff here, stuff that is not part of the the indigenous culture that's obviously coming from somewhere else. And if they then did archaeology in North America and Europe, they go, oh, that's the source of this. Yeah, they would they would see in a heartbeat that there was this clash between two cultures and that one of these cultures had these more technologically advanced materials that they brought with them and and deposited here in this place. We, as archaeologists, archaeologists who work in South America, we've been doing this for decades and decades, looking at the antiquities of South America, have never found that trash that you're talking about from the extraterrestrials. And And I would think extraterrestrial trash would stick out. Yeah, you would, you know, th- th- we, we would be finding those lasers, Sarah. We would be finding, even well, though they're broken. Because they're talked about lasers. as being like this really cool stuff, you know, all this great, awesome technology that we, that the aliens brought us and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, where, where is it? If it's so freaking cool, it's going to be very different looking from anything that the native peoples had at that time. Right. So where is this weird, crazy trash you know, and, and so often it does. You know, we've made this argument. We 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 posed this argument before. We've made this point before, and we will make it again. And we'll make <laughs> it probably every damn show. Which is yeah. that's the currency of archaeology. That's the gold standard: physical evidence, material evidence, archaeological yeah. evidence. It blows me away when people criticize archaeology for doing archaeology for demanding <laughs> evidence that is archaeological on a question that is archaeological. So, yeah, I mean, of course, we are going to ask for, in fact, we're going to demand, if you're going to support your hypothesis, no matter what it is, no matter how silly I might think a hypothesis is, that's irrelevant. The bottom line here is you got your hypothesis, here's how you test it, here's the evidence that's required to lend support to that hypothesis. And in this case, you better damn well be doing archaeology in Peru and finding (laughs) out-of-place artifacts, finding stuff that... Holy God, this is a thousand years ago, and here, this is an advanced technology, not of this earth. Here's the physical evidence. And if you don't have that, you need to either shut up or go back to the drawing board, do some more research. Because otherwise, you know, it's just there, you simply cannot support that hypothesis. And if that sounds, you know, strong, well, it, it ought to be because what you're saying fundamentally is, you know, those local people, they were not smart enough to draw giant lions and animals in the desert. They needed help from the outside. And that's insulting to those people. But I, I do want to I want to add something that you you hinted at here. Neither Sarah or I are denigrating the folks of of South of the South Pacific and saying, oh, those silly cargo culters. If you listen to their the the people of the cargo cult, the things that they're saying Look at it from an objective perspective. Right. It's no sillier than anything that any organized religion yeah. with millions of people in the United States have to say. That's an argument for another day. But look at look at the beliefs that you grew up with. If you're an American and you are Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, whatever, and say, you know, some of the stuff that we were told as kids, yeah, from an objective perspective, it's kind of strange. It's no stranger and no less strange than what folks who are adherents of the, to the cargo cult. I think one of my favorite quotes from when I was researching the the John Furham cults was there was an interviewer that went out and spoke with 
uh, a gentleman called Chief Isaac, who is apparently one of the at the time was one of the head priests for the firm cult. And he he asked the guy, he said, you know, you've been waiting all this time for John Firm to come back. Don't you think it's time to kind of give it up? And Chief Isaac looked back at him and said, you Christians have been waiting 2000 years for Jesus to return the <laughs> yeah, earth. He says, yes. and you haven't given up hope yet. And I'm yes, just like, so, so you know, that guy, like you he's guys. on it. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that guy knows what's going on. Good point. That's a very okay, good so point. We're going to go to break really quick. And when we come back, I want to talk about uh, a couple more of the, the geoglyphs before we, we sign off. Sure. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. So, Sarah, which is your favorite glyph? Uh, actually, my favorite glyph is the condor, just because I think it's cool. But I yeah. wanted to talk about the astronaut, uh, the one referred to as the astronaut alien. And I'm not talking about the little guy that looks like Slimer with a hand. Um, apparently, there's a – this is one that kind of the pseudoscientists like to point to, the, the ancient astronaut enthusiasts like to point to because there is a glyph and I think this one's actually sort of up the cliff a little. It's not actually on the ground. Um, but it's a, a full standing figure of a, um, what looks a man because there's no genitalia on it to distinguish sex really. And it's got right. one hand down on its side and one hand up in the air. It, and, and it's the one you mentioned earlier. It looks like it's waving. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I have always heard it referred to as being the astronaut. I'm not really sure what mainstream archaeologists refer to him as because there's, I guess he's kind of a bubblehead. And so Von Daniken goes on about this guy because he says, oh, it's obviously an astronaut because he's wearing an astronaut's costume, referring to the, the spacesuits that uh, astronauts at the time and modern astronauts wear, where right. they've got the big bubble helmet. And but you can see his face, so he's like, "Oh, he must have his visor up." But so, he's got this big bubble head and kind of a shapeless, kind of vaguely formed body. Right. Um, now, a lot of people like to point to that and say, "Well, if they weren't trying to communicate with aliens, why did they make a glyph of an astronaut?" And this goes back to when you were talking about the Mayan, um, the Mayan, Mayan hieroglyphs. And the one particularly of the, the, the Palenque sarcophagus lid, yeah, 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 where the, you know Von Daniken likes to say, "Oh, he's obviously flying a spaceship," and it's like, no, it's his soul escaping while he's laying there dying, you're dead. Um, but yeah, I mean, I find that one interesting because it's another one of those situations where you you see what you're told to see. Yeah, and the, the the thing that you're 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 hinting at here as well. It's that so many of these 
these things, the, 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 the interpreters are kind of trapped in their own time warp. So yeah. that, do we really believe that, that, that a thousand years ago, individual, some of these, these, this enormous intelligence can cross interstellar, interstellar space, but they're wearing spacesuits that look right. like 1960s Apollo or, right. or Gemini or Mercury astronauts. And that, that's probably not what they're going to look. Hell, in Star Trek, they don't have to use you know, uniforms or, or you know, uh, spacesuits at all. They've got their, they somehow managed to bring their own environment with them. Which it was, it was Ken, Ken, yeah. it was on their belts. They had an atmosphere generator on their belts. Well, well there you go. Well, if, if, <laughs> wait, listen, if we could, if, if we could do it in Star Trek, certainly the real deal could do it as well. You know, we've done a good chunk of what was in Star Trek. I'm pretty sure that's coming next. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but that's but that actually that is kind of typical that that this happens when we talked about Atlantis. It happens with the ancient astronaut thing that it's whatever time period the fringe writer is writing from. It, right. He imposes this kind this image, this very anachronistic image of the technology of his or her modern time. But that could be the 1960s. Assuming that incredibly advanced intelligence a thousand years ago, had technologies that were no more advanced than the ones that we have in the 20th century or the exactly. 20, early 21st century, which is kind of nonsensical. Right. I mean, if, it, if they have the ability to cross space and time like that, surely they've found a way to have would, a better space suit. Exactly. And now I think this brings us to something we've been hinting at all along, which is that, you know, archaeologists don't really know why the people of Nazca, any more than we know why the people of Southern California did the Intaglios or why the people of England did the Uffington Horse or why the people of Ohio made the Great Serpent Mound. Why do people make stuff that can only be appreciated from on high? And for me, I mean, the most obvious reason there is, listen, if you're going to populate your world with gods and spirits, you have three options. You can put them right here on our earthly plane, but that's right. kind of hard because we don't, you know, wait a minute. I'm looking around. I don't see any spirits or gods walking around. You can put them underground, and many cultures did. The Maya, in, you know, put gods and spirits living in caverns and, and, and such because that makes sense. Caverns are dark. They're spooky. They're hard to get to. We don't – we don't. They, it's like another world. But, you know, you just look up at the sky – that's a perfectly reasonable place to put your gods and spirits because we can't get up there. We can't fly up there. So, gee, maybe the gods and spirits are up on high. And if you want to communicate with them, if you want to produce things that are artistic, spiritual, scientific, historical, to communicate to the gods, you do it on a large scale and you do it so they can see it. And one of the best examples of that comes from a, that Nova video about – ancient astronauts that was the horizon slash nova videos made a long time ago where they point out that medieval churches are built so that from on high uh -huh. are in the shape of a cross yep. now you can't see that on the ground you can't appreciate that on the ground and they certainly didn't have flying machines and they didn't they didn't fly up above the crosses they didn't need to to build them and from their perspective it was it wasn't important that we can't see it God can see it. He's right. up there in heaven looking down and he sees all of these crosses. Well, if we can accept the fact that medieval Europeans built structures large scale so that the, 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 the individual they were building them for, God on high, could see them, 
we should probably afford that same courtesy to ancient people who probably placed a lot of their gods and spirits up in the sky because you know that it makes sense to put them up there and right. it's for them to see it's not for us it's not for astronauts it's for the gods well and it and, also comes back down it comes around to group identity too because you've got you know all these medieval churches they're in the form of a cross it's identifying them as christians Right. And the same thing is probably going on with like the people that built Serpent Mound and the people that built the bear effigies and same thing with the right. Nazca lines. They're using these large symbols to communicate with their particular gods. And they're also using it as a way to say, hey, you know, to simplify it. Hey, we're the condor people, you know. And, you know, over here, we're the hummingbird people. And over here, we're the large, long trapezoid people. I mean, there, and there's no reason to not think that that isn't ceremonial space, because we also know that uh, prehistoric peoples were building large mounds and, and cities and such out of Earth as a way of separating sacred space. And there's no reason to think that that's not the same things that are happening here. Right, I mean, yeah. Probably with the Ethington horse, it probably is a, a like not only a territorial marker, but also a, you know, hey, I think that's a, I think that's attached to a goddess, isn't it? A goddess of the white horse. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure, right? Yeah, but, but, but that one's attached directly to a horse. So not only are you saying, hey, we want that god to look down and be favorable upon us, but also, hey, this is our territory. This is where we live. Right. Well, I think Sarah, that's a really important point that you're making. It's a it's a question that people ask me all the time. It drives me crazy. And I'll, I'll phrase it the way they do, very specifically. I'll, I'll give a lecture about Stonehenge, and they'll go, so wait a minute. So I don't understand. Is Stonehenge like a scientific device, like a computer? Or was it a place where they worshipped their gods? And I say, the fact that you ask that question presupposes, from a 21st century perspective, that right. those are di mutually exclusive things. Right. We compartmentalize them. That's for political purposes, that's economic, that's social, that's religious, and that's not the way most people in the world have been for most of human history. Right. So that bu building, if, if, if in creating an, a Nazca line, because you want to demarcate a territory, you want to say, we were here, this is our territory, but you also want it to aim to the summer solstice, because you are memorializing the importance of the god of the sun, all of those things are part of the same thing. They're not separate. So that if you are the monkey clan and you put a big monkey on the desert, but you also align it so that it is it, it points to a point in the sky where a series of stars look like a monkey constellation and other people who walk through here see that and they go, oh, this is the monkey clan's territory. All right. of that's part of the same package. They're not exclusive. They're not separate. They're part of the same thing. Exactly. So, yeah. So, and you know, the, and the, the bottom line here is everybody needs to understand we do not, we cannot give you a definitive answer. Why did they put a giant monkey or a giant condor or a giant spider in the desert? And we're not going to tell you we know definitively why they did it. But what we're telling you is there are some reasonable explanations that fit what we understand, what anthropologists understand about culture that makes sense without, again, applying Occam's razor, without kind of surrendering to fringe or pseudoscientific ideas that simply have zero evidence in their support. We know people make giant 
pieces of art. We know people do that as part of a religious um, activity. We know they do it as part of a social activity. So we right. know that people do that. We are simply saying, you know, the people of Nazca, probably no different than people uh, everywhere else in the world. And again, there's no evidence for anything um, other than that kind of pedestrian um, explanation, very human explanation. I, I mean, I, like you were saying, it, it could be possible they were just making these because they're cool. I mean, maybe it was a competition of some sort. I don't know. More likely than not, it's a ceremonial space, especially when you look at the the pottery and the other artifacts that are associated with it. That's just what these things tend to be. I am I am comfortable. Me personally, I am comfortable saying, well, evidence points to this. I'm comfortable saying that's probably what they were. But there's always got to be that space for, you know, maybe it was really just a giant artwork competition to see who can build the biggest one, uh, even though we have carbon dates on them. So we know which ones went down first and which ones came later. But, so. but check it. Look, at you know, so often we, we, we fail to ascribe to ancient people the kinds of behaviors that modern people follow as well. So there are people out there making crop circles and they're artists. They're doing it just because it's cool because other people right. comment on it. And you know what? People are like that. I remember years ago I heard a lecture by Ruth Tringham who was a, uh, an archaeologist at – I believe she was at Harvard. She was a, a British woman I believe. And she was talking about cave paintings. And it was the same kind of argument, Sarah, about, well, are they are they religious? Is it sympathetic magic? Are there sexual connotations? And Ruth Tringham said, well, you know, we don't know. But, you know, it could just be the women are living in the cave and they want to spruce up the walls of the cave. So yeah, I mean. images on them. Well, you well, know, you know have not you, ridiculous. Did you watch a movie? This came out several years ago and I just got around to watching it like last week. It was called The Crudes. It's an animated movie. I think it was by Pixar. It was about. I have it's an that. adorable movie. You Is would it? love it. Uh-huh. You would, as an archaeologist, uh-huh. you would love it. Um, but it's it's basically a story about a group of they're like the last group of Neanderthals. Okay. And they're uh, they're trying basically the world is crumbling and down around them and it's not Earth. It's an Earth like plant. I mean, Earth like world. Right. Anyway, but. They're being very. It's it was it's like an animated quest for fire. Only it's <laughs> the main character. They all can talk English, and the main character is a young teenage girl who's just basically trying to become her own person. Anyway, okay. the the reason in the crudes that was the cave paintings were explained is because every time the father would tell a story, he would he would paint the walls as he told the story, and of course, oh. all of his stories ended with people dying. So there's all these red handprints everywhere. But he, I thought it was interesting how they would use, because even when they had, eventually they left their cave and there's a couple scenes where they're out in the open and he's telling them a story. And instead of painting on the rocks, he's drawing on the ground. But they, I thought it was interesting how they tied in the cave paintings to the storytelling because it was happening simultaneously. So it's like he's telling the story, leaving the painting, leaving the picture behind. So that he could reference it later at another point. See, I told you this story before, and that's that's really cool. I mean, I think ultimately, maybe that's that's the general rule when you when you see these these fringe claims, you see these these shows on cable. Always remember that you know what you you should not be underestimating the skill, the creativity, the imaginations of human beings. And right, that means human beings from a long time ago as well. So that 
it's the mis- the the error pops in the the mistake arises when you when you don't accept that you know what people are creative and imaginative and they will work hard to create things of beauty and things that are more meaningful to them in ways that we maybe will never be able to fathom instead of saying no they're a bunch of dumb shit kickers sitting around waiting for the extraterrestrial peace corps to arrive and say you benighted savages we will teach you how to create these beautiful i mean that's just that's 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 a fundamental mistake and I'm still stuck on the whole thing. I always get stuck on aliens traveling light years in machines that keep them alive over vast spaces of space, get to this planet, and the only way they can record their being here is to carve shitty pictures on rocks or, you know, and just the, so the, stupid. The, yeah, the bottom, the, well, see, the bottom line here is if, if only one of these these extraterrestrial bastards had left an iPad that right. we could now plug in, charge right. it up, and say, oh my god, it's all here! They're Surely. telling us who they were here! That's I mean, we even need. we managed to launch a golden disc out into space that you can yeah. play on a record player with a laser. I mean, even we managed to do that, well, we're go. not we're, that advanced. Right, so if we're smart enough to do that, the <laughs> Surely they have would something. have done that as well. <laughs> and just we, you know, there's, there's, a whole, there's another show on... <laughs> The, the claim that, well, we archaeologists have found that evidence, but we're hiding it from people. That's well, but, another show. Yeah, we, we should do the agenda show. But unfortunately, we are out of time on this but show. But it's been a great, great conversation. I enjoyed this a lot. I always like talking about the Nazca Lines because they're cool. Well, they're just, yeah, exactly. They're really cool. Um, okay, so, well, Ken, thank you very much. You're welcome, Sarah, and I look forward to our next discussion. Me too. Maybe I can actually pirouette by then. <laughs> Raise your trials as one will call. No way down to a dinosaur. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archaeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.